Pull over one. Welcome to episode 73 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Words and their meanings morph over time. Take the word authentic in regards to an object and how we agree that it means that it isn't fake. But when used to label a person, we add a layer of meaning that they are good. But authenticity doesn't have anything to do with virtue. Authenticity means you're true to your own personality, values, and spirit, regardless of the pressures that you're under to act otherwise. The authenticity of your personality, values, and spirit could not be virtuous. You're just open and honest about it. On the contrary, an inauthentic person can display that they are authentic and virtuous and use that ability to control and manipulate others and even systems. In the work world, the term ladder climber comes to mind. Perhaps you've heard the firefighter adage, some people can make a whole career being a nice person, meaning that although not competent, it is overlooked because they are enjoyable to be around. In the litigation world, it can be used to create a narrative to achieve a desired outcome at the cost of another. Either person in both of these examples can feel and believe they are authentic and virtuous, even though they are not. In Jennifer Beer's 2020 article in Scientific American, The Inconvenient Truth About Your Authentic Self, she explains that people can feel the most authentic when they act like a cross between the perfect party guest and the perfect coworker, even if that isn't their true nature. She cites that people's feelings of authenticity are often shaped by something other than their loyalty to their unique qualities. Paradoxically, feelings of authenticity seem to be related to a kind of social conformity. Once again, we bump up against how being honest with others starts with being honest with ourselves. My guest this episode is a human performance specialist and one of the foremost voices in the world of breathwork today. His own life transformation led him to discover how our physiology and psychology often conflict with the modern world. It's a pleasure to bring you Jesse Coomer. So I figured, why don't we start with you giving me a bit of backstory about what your life was like before you discovered that you needed to shift and then we'll lead into breath work and how that all happened. So why don't you give me a before story? So for me, I had an issue growing up that there's these things that cascade. And one of those things for me was that I am naturally a extreme extrovert, but I have always had a lot of social anxiety as well. So there's this interesting combination of a person whose sole desire is to go out and be social. And that is the thing that strikes fear into me. I struggled with that. I really became a a big thing in high school. Of course, I think that's whenever most people struggle with that. And I learned to deal with it in all of the worst ways. And for me, I would behave in a goofy way that would make me look dumber than I really am. I would do a lot of dissociation. I would do a lot of things that that ultimately led to me feeling even more socially awkward. Then I started to get into drugs and alcohol. Right at at the end of high school, I decided to get high once for 10 years. Uh, So I went into drugs and alcohol, but then I did eventually find a drug of choice and I became a drug addict. And the great thing about drugs, man, is that they help you to control, right? And, And ultimately, I was seeking control. And this is something that 
I think a lot of us seek is, is okay, I need to control my emotions. I need to control my, how I feel. And, and I think drugs was a way that I did it for myself, but I think we all, there's a lot of different ways. I would say there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. You can seek control, control how you feel in, in a lot of different ways that we have available. And not all these ways are inherently bad. I mean, alcohol in itself is not bad. Okay. This is the state that I'm comfortable to be alive in. I didn't have a problem with alcohol. I had the problem with, or with opioids. And I would say I, I was, I was, I was into opioids before they were cool. I was, I'm the hipster of opioid addiction. <laughs> the control aspect of it, of course, eventually evaporates. And then you realize that you're doing this and it's not helping. It's a terrible thing. And so I realized that I needed to make a change in my late twenties and I did the craziest thing and I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone, but I, I weaned myself off over the course of a year. At the same time, I started grad school and the thinking that I had, and I still, I, I don't credit myself with being smart enough to, but, but I did have the thinking of, well, if I'm going to step away from something, I have to let something good be born in its place. I'm going to let a thing die. And I, and I didn't have all this put together at the time, or at least I didn't intellectually know this at the time, but maybe intuitively I put it together. I don't know. I think a lot of it was just, I got lucky or that I don't think I'm special in any way. I, I just think I was very fortunate in that I realized that I needed to have something to identify with. And I needed to have something to help me to feel proud of myself. I needed to have a goal to shoot for something other than don't do that thing, right? It's the classic, don't think about the purple elephant or whatever. The, maybe it's a pink elephant. I don't know. Here I was, I was in my, I was in my late twenties and I had, I, I was coming out of that. Now the, the issue is when you, when you've been on something when you've and it can be drugs and this is not i don't want to give this as a drug talk right i do a lot of work in the clinics and i i, I really do try to give back these days but this is this is part of the human condition that we all have to face is that there are ways there are so many ways to dissociate from your emotions and dissociate from your feelings from your nervous system there are so many ways to do that and we're very good as a species as figuring out ways to do those things and mine just happened to be this one thing but there's a lot of other ways to do it more than ever yeah more than any other time in history right mine happened to be one that also came along with a chemical addiction but I would argue that there's a lot of chemical addictions that maybe you're not adding a chemical to your bloodstream, but you're certainly becoming addicted to the chemical releases that are occurring whenever you give yourself these different kinds of stimuli, right? And so what happened was I, I said, okay, I'm going to go become an English professor because in undergrad, when you're on drugs and I was a musician, I was like the classic like uh, artsy fartsy guy into poetry and art. And I went to undergrad on a, on an art scholarship and all these things. But I remembered, I loved the philosophy. I loved the discourse, at least back in, back in those days, what I believed 
was just a fantastic element when it comes to rhetoric and how people can interrelate to each other and how they can speak to each other. They can disagree and they can have really great conversations and everybody comes out still respecting each other. And I love that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to become an English professor and go into that. And I focus on research and rhetoric. And then midway through grad school, I had my first day of not taking drugs and I didn't die. And I was really happy about that. I made it those valuable two weeks of zero dosage. And I was like, hey, great. Okay. I'm no longer chemically addicted to opioids anymore. And now I have all of this anxiety that I never dealt with. And in addition to that, I went 10 years and I atrophied the very few muscles that I had a decade ago to deal with these things. So I, I compare this period of my life. It was almost as if it's like whenever you have a, a wound and you get that first coat of skin, it's very, very thin. That's how I felt when it came to dealing with the stressors of life and the anxieties of, of life. I didn't understand what they were. And I don't think anybody really, I think so many of us, I think the vast majority of us go around having no idea what these things are. And when you don't know, when you don't know what something is and it keeps speaking to you, it's like, well, okay, that's pretty creepy, right? If, if a person was coming up to you and, and saying, hey, everybody hates you or you're going to die. <laughs> if, if someone was saying that, that and you, you're just like, this in, disembodied voice, that would be really freaky. And in many ways, Ways, that's what our nervous system is doing. And we'll get into that in a minute. But what happened was I started to say, okay, I've seen what I can do if I just stick with something and keep moving forward. And so I'm not going to let this, this thing that caused me to have all this problem, I'm going to actually work on it with the same dogged determination that I beat this addiction from. That was really a hard thing to do. I can do this. So I started doing all the things that people say you should do. And, and honestly, there's a good reason why they, sh they, they, we should do these things. Hey, I started to exercise, right? And exercise sucks. You know, you get sweaty and stinky and sore and all these things. And yes, those things happen. And that's why I never wanted to do them before, but I started to get into those things and I started to feel more comfortable in my own skin. I started to see progress. I, I was like, hey, I feel better. I look better. There's some satisfaction after putting in the time, I'm making progress. And so I did that. I started eating better, all these things. And it wasn't because I was thinking about being a biohacker or trying to live to 140. It was because I was trying to, I was trying to deal with being a human and it was, it was something that was, there was this constant gnawing that I was trying to deal with. And I knew it was these interesting things that, they, they, that life started to become a little bit more manageable and a little bit more enjoyable. And so eventually fast forward to 2013, I was like, okay, I still have anxiety. It's bad. And I still have a lot of these issues. I've heard that meditation is great. I had a friend who taught me some meditation and I was like, man, this is really terrible. I, <laughs> and, 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 and there's more, there's more. I'm not saying meditation is terrible, but at the time, right. And I think most people, whenever they first sit down, right. And I'm, if you've ever meditated, you sit down for your first time, you close your eyes 
and five seconds goes by and you're like, am, am I done yet? There's a certain degree of we're not used to going in. We're used to having external stimuli all the time and to really become silent and to really be able to go inward is a real challenge and something we're so it's it's almost it's so alien to us now that it really was a struggle so i was like okay so i did what i mean what we all do whenever we're trying to solve a problem i consulted the internet and i found breath work and so i started practicing a few different forms of breath work. I started practicing pranayama. Some of those things, okay, it was kind of interesting. And I started going to like a yoga class and taking some pranayama there. I trained with Wim Hof and he was one of my first teachers. And what he was saying was really in alignment with my thinking at the time, which is control your thoughts, control, control, control. And of course, that was my first real experience with superventilation or hyperventilation style breath work. So, so I was like, wow, this is, and I thought it was some kind of a magical thing, right? I thought, okay, I finally figured it out. Oh, you just breathe in and out this many times, hold your breath for this long. And it's this magic code, you push it into your buttons and, oh, now you're fixed. And that's how it's marketed. Okay, great. I guess I'm, I'll be fixed. And I will say that I hadn't done enough pranayama at the time. I hadn't done Bostrika yet, so I, I didn't recognize the breathing technique. I started to notice, wow, I, I really do have less anxiety. I have less stress, and I didn't know how much I was carrying around with me. I think most people carry around a, a lot more stress and anxiety than they know. And then when it's alleviated, it's kind of like, I don't know if you have a ringing in your ear that you didn't realize was there and then it goes away or you're in a room all day and it stinks and you don't know it stinks. And then you walk out into the fresh air and you're like, oh my God, it's wow. It's really stuck in there. I didn't realize that's how I felt. And what happened was I thought, wow, this is fantastic. This is great. I started to teach Wim Hof at first. And then I started being like, man, I want to find out everything I can about this breathing thing. And so I did, I, I just researched and researched and researched. And of course my background at the time, I was a research and rhetoric professor. So I had become an English professor. So I taught people research skills, how to do the research and how to kind of peruse through the nonsense. And I started finding out, wow, there's been decades of research in how breathing influences uh, how this stuff works and thousands of years of pranayama. And, and I started learning un, under other teachers. And in 2020, I came out with my first book, A Practical Guide to Breathwork. And at this time, I had been teaching breathwork like mixed modalities. So people would come to me. I was, I, okay, I guess to pepper in there, I had already, in, the, in that meantime, I had already become a personal trainer. I I'm all about like, if I'm going to, if I'm fascinated about something, I'm just going to learn it to the depths. And so I was finding out, well, it's interesting. Breathing is, is something that influences us all the time. It's not just a session and then that's it. Or do it in the morning, do it in the night. And then there you've got to practice it. It's, it's all the time. I'm like, interesting. But in my first book, by the time I published that and it, it exploded, when you write a book, you don't know if anybody's going to read it. And I just assumed, well, you know, hey, not a lot of people have written a book. Yeah, it's a little something off my bucket list. 
but it, it did explode. And, and, I'm, and I'm very thankful for that. And at the time I was really getting into, that's when I really started to understand or really started to research interoception. That's our sense of internal awareness. And interoception is something that I really have been focusing on since the publishing of that book. And it's really enveloped my practice. Since the publishing of that book, I almost directly after that, I started researching ultimately how emotions work. So often we look at emotions as something that it's almost like this accident of nature that we have and it's love and it's hate and hey, we got the good ones and we've got the bad ones. And and so I started doing a lot of research with, and actually the research of Dr. Cynthia Price has been foundational for my breathwork practice. Now the language of breath is what I call this. Of course, as a English professor, I, I suppose I would think of things in linguistic terms. But that's how I find myself today. That's how I got to where I am right now um, in my breathwork practice, realizing that it's that it's everything. I started ultimately completely looking for control. And eventually I found out that it's not about control at all. <laughs> it's about building a relationship. So I, that's maybe a longer version than maybe you, you signed nope. up for when you asked that question. But let me touch back on a couple of pieces there. You talked about how you're this extroverted internally, but externally, a lot of social anxiety when connecting with people. You talked about maybe not being able to be authentic with people, being worried about being authentic with people and being accepted. And I'm sure like that, that causes a lot of anxiety and stress and a lot of energy that has to be maintained at all times. At what point during the journey did it, like you talked about that initial transition of recognizing when the addiction was really impacting your life and how you needed to make a change. But at what point do you feel like you started to get a handle on who you were? When did you start to release that social anxiety or when did you feel like you could start being authentic? Are you still working on it? As I'm sure a lot of us always are. When did that shift for you? That is a huge question. So this is a strange thing, right? So first of all, I didn't realize that it is a natural inclination of all extroverts to have social anxiety. I, no one ever tells you that, right? Introverts look at extroverts and say, oh, you are so lucky. You just have all this courage and, and, and excitement. And in reality, to be an extrovert is to constantly live in a state of you're taking risk. So you're taking risk in order to fulfill the need that you have, which is to have social interactions to let you know that you are valuable. And it might sound lame, right? It might sound super lame if to, to, to make it sound like that. But ultimately, our personalities, all of these things that are governed by our unconscious processes, they're all survival strategies. And ultimately, we're looking for ways to fit in within our society and within the structures, so the social hierarchies of our society. And, and everyone has their own strategy. We call those personalities. But what happens is we tend to oversimplify everything because we're human. And so we say introvert, extrovert. And now we're, we've gone so crazy. We're like, oh, now there's an ambivert. There's a third option, which is kind of in the middle. But in reality, it's this wide spectrum of, of individuals. And it just seems as though some people take risk in order to get the reward, which is the social validation. Other people get less value out of social validation, but they still have that craving. We all have that craving. So I didn't realize that. No one told me that. This is the thing that I wish everybody would know early on is ultimately we all have these desires and you'll never not have them. 
the language of breath philosophy. And of course, we'll talk about, hey, the book's coming out and the course and retreats and things. What I've come to learn over all of these years of study and research and practice is ultimately that we're constantly a mix between unconscious and, and, and conscious reactions, right? So, and, and, the, and the funny thing is most of us is unconscious. Now we hate hearing that because the way that we've developed, especially in the West, but I, 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 would, I would argue it's just as humans is we've developed in a way that sets apart the mind from the body. And it's like, well, I've got a mind and I direct around this body. And in reality, it's far more complex. I would argue the mind and the body are the same thing. We're 37.2 trillion cells. It's just a human, right? We are an organism, <laughs> right? A holistic system. Yeah, exactly. Every cell is working together. You can't take the stomach out and the stomach can go live on its own. Everything has to be part of it, the, this whole thing. And, and so we oftentimes will mistake the fact that we have what we believe to be an experience of reality and we'll say, well, that's my mind. And I'm, I'm thinking. And the thing is, I think therefore I am. We blame a lot. A lot of this, we, we call it the Cartesian split because Rene Descartes, the same guy who I think therefore I am. I mean, which is circular logic. If you take, if anybody wants to take my rhetoric classes, <laughs> I'm sorry, I retired from being a professor, but, but the point is we've disconnected those things. And I'm going to come back. Both those questions are fantastic questions. So, but, but I want to, I want to kind of couch it in the fact that I didn't understand that everything that I was experiencing was me trying to help me because my unconscious me, which is again, so, so about, I mean, the vast majority of who you are, your personality, your preconceived notions, your beliefs about the world around you, your beliefs about yourself, it's unconscious. And it's coloring all of your experiences. So, okay. So as a high schooler, and we, I think we all experience this. I don't think I was special in this way. I think uh, I was just like everybody else in the way that I'm, I'm trying to, to navigate the social hierarchy. And we, we find social hierarchies especially important during that point of our life, especially. So I was trying to navigate the social hierarchies. My unconscious me was putting together all these scenarios of danger because it's it's like, hey, you might say something stupid and then everybody's going to hate you and all these things, right? And it's doing that. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's doing that out of love because it cares about me, right? And it's not something other than me. It's me, right? I care about me. My unconscious me cares about how my life turns out. So it's trying to give me warning signs, but I don't realize that. I don't. I don't know what those things are. I just experience it as discomfort as what we call anxiety today. I experience it as stress. I experience it as emotions. I would say most of my life, I didn't know what the biological function of emotions are. And I'm trying to decipher all those things as a teenager. And humans do this, right? This is a normal human experience. And so early on, I was actually being, strangely enough, and I, I don't believe you cannot be your authentic self. So I was in, and I'll unpack that in a second, but I was being my authentic self as a high school student when I was making choices to try to alleviate the problems that I was recognizing unconsciously. And so here I was, I'm like, well, the only way to do this, I want to feel a certain way because I don't like the way I feel when I'm in these social situations, but I 
don't like the way I feel when I'm not in the social situations more. So I need something to mask this voice that's coming out that's saying, hey, you might say something stupid. So I'm going to take drugs or alcohol to do that so that I can quiet that voice enough for me to be in those situations and for me to have whatever you know interactions I think I'm going to have. Strangely enough, at, it was my case and is most people's case when they do that, they end up not wanting to go be social anymore. And and so you, that's one of the biggest signs of addiction is if a person who's outgoing becomes a hermit, right? And that happened to me. It happens so often because then you're no longer even looking forward to the social hierarchy, all these things that naturally all of our dopaminergic or uh, all of these these systems within us that are there to to push us toward positive results in that area, they don't work the way they're supposed to work anymore. And you can do that again with drugs, alcohol, but also a lot of other things will do this for us. Or if we're getting it from the drug or alcohol, why do you need to go elsewhere to get it? Because now the drug's giving it to you. So the drug's like your friend. Exactly. If you're getting it from social media, why go out and be a a real social person? If you're getting it from binge watching, whatever, there's so many ways we can do it. That was where I was at that time. And I didn't realize how any of that works. And I feel for my, I'm going to explain it to my son as much as I can, but it's one of the biggest messages of my breathwork philosophy is this is what you are. And, and so much of breathwork is here's maybe a simple trick to, to deal with your stress or anxiety. But the thing is, if you understand where those things are coming from, then we can start to train and work with those things and form a better relationship with the unconscious part of yourself so that you're not just trying to tell to shut up. Because a lot of times I think that that's what I was even doing when I was doing breath work. I was just trying to tell that part of me to shut up and I wasn't honoring that part of myself. Are you then speaking to, say, the idea of symptom relief versus getting to the root cause of what's happening? You're looking at yourself as sick whenever you're actually just a human being experiencing what it is to be a human being. And those impulses, the ones that are comfortable, the ones that are uncomfortable, all of those things, they're there for a reason. And it is to push you into action. And that's one of the biggest things we have. And and I would say probably even since the pandemic and things, we've been less active. And, and it's, I'm not just talking about going out to be with exercise. I'm talking about taking action in your life. We seem to plant ourselves and try to deal with the situation that we live in as opposed to taking actions to improve our our lives. And breath work is, I would say, it it can be, and and this is my goal with my book and with with everything I do with the language of breath, is ultimately to help a person take action. Because you can sit there all day and do breath work and you can feel blissed out and all this stuff and say, well, you know what? I don't care about my life not being as good as I want it to be. I did that with drugs, right? (laughs) So breath work is not about dulling anxiety or dulling stress. And so much of the messaging out there, actually what got me into it was that because I was looking for, and I didn't even realize that I was looking for a replacement for the drug. Or dissociating, right? Like you obviously feel dissociated when you're in that breathwork deep space. Exactly. And I'm not saying that I don't still use techniques that are blissful and things like that. And so language of breath has plenty of those techniques, but it is a matter of 
the purpose and understanding what you are because that determines how you treat yourself. And so before, and, and we'll get into, let, let's get into maybe the, the breath work here in just a second, but, but coming back to your question, because I, I, I find this in to be a really fascinating question, which is becoming more authentic, be, being our authentic self. And oftentimes we look at, okay, to be authentic, that would mean that our, our actions and our thoughts are in alignment with our values. And I think that so often we forget that you can consciously have values and, and be unaware of your unconscious values. And so, for instance, you might consciously understand the need, like for instance, in health and wellness, that's a good example. So, okay, I consciously understand I should eat better, right? I should eat better. I, I shouldn't eat so much. I shouldn't be finding excuses to go get junk food, right? conscious awareness. I understand this consciously. And why is it that I just can't make myself do that? Every single day, I just I just slip. And at the end of the day, I'm like, ah, I did it again, right? And, and what that is, is that you haven't actually proven it to your unconscious self that those are the things that are the best for you. The unconscious you is, is always picking up patterns and it will make associations. So for instance, a lot of people will associate overeating with the good times in life, right? It's like, hey, every time I get to get, last time I got together with my family and I had a wonderful time, we overate. This is something I do that brings me pleasure and joy and it brings me, and, and it's something I associate with those good times. So unconsciously, it will paint these habits and, and behaviors in a way that influences you to do them. And so we can try to white knuckle it or we can try to form a good relationship with ourselves. And that's where you see, I think, the biggest possibility for positive change, becoming aware of, okay, I don't even have to know why I have these unconscious impulses and desires, fears, or anything like that. I don't even have to know why. So oftentimes we get caught up in the why. I don't even have to know why. I just know that if I become aware of how I feel, then I can start to say, well, for some reason, I feel the urge to do this behavior that's not in alignment with my conscious values. So what is with that? So, And we can start to work with it. So I think we're always, strangely enough, I think we're always being our authentic self. It's just that we're not always living in alignment with the things that consciously we want to live in alignment with. There's a part of us when we lie, when we do things that are outside of our conscious values, there is a part of your unconscious self that's okay with that. And it believes that lying or doing whatever, right, is something that is going to move you closer to thriving or surviving within the planet or within the social hierarchies that you live in. Well, you mentioned about the brain needing shortcuts or called heuristics, templates, right? The brain is all about efficiency. It requires 25% of every bit of energy that you take in. It's always looking for shortcuts and energy. And there's, there's so much stimulation that if you took it all in at once, your brain can't possibly handle it. So it's looking for shortcuts. So if, if what worked yesterday, that's probably going to work right now. Why would we take the energy and time to try something different? It's crazy. Our, our unconscious processes will fight against you taking in new information that conflicts with the things that you already believe. Because... It, like exactly what you said. Why are we going to expend all this energy whenever I think we have it good enough already? Like consciously, we're not always aware of this. 
Once we become aware of it, then we can start working with it. And, and a lot of people might be listening to this and saying, well, wait a minute, how does this have anything to do with breath work, right? This sounds like, let's go lay down on the couch and talk to our psychologist. But it's so important. This is the foundation is to say, okay, what am I? And so my book comes out in October. And I, one of the, is a little spoiler, I'll give you a little, one of the things I discuss is the longest enduring theory in all of medicine lasted for about 2,500 years. I mean, we're talking 2,500 years. We're talking about Hippocrates to about 1888, and it was called humorism. So, and you, you, you might be familiar with this. This is the belief that we're created out of four humors. These are four liquids, and they have a corresponding element. So one is corresponding to fire, one corresponds to cold. And it's when those things are out of balance that we become ill. And if that's how you understand to be, if, if, if that's the way the doctor's like, well, we got a human here, that means there's four liquids and we need to balance those liquids. We need something dry and then something hot. So literally there are doctors that prescribed roosters, <laughs> like here, take a rooster home because it's dry and it's a hot animal. And this is going to cure you because you have an issue. You are too cold and you are too wet. And 2,500 years. George Washington, his physician, George Washington is listed as dying from a throat infection. His physician drained 40% of his blood out of his body. He was trying to use humorism, which he was trying to balance the humors. So we have to understand what we are before we interact with ourselves to create the life that we want to live. Because I don't care what you do, if you're biohacking based off of bad information, you're going to get a bad result. So we have to think, okay, so we are a singular organism. When I talk about the foundations of the language of breath, this is these are the things that I that I train my breath workers in. This is the stuff that you're going to find out in my book. But still buy my book. Still buy my book, everybody. But ultimately, we are a singular organism. We are not a machine. So often we compare ourselves to a machine. And it's, I think, a useful metaphor but so oftentimes a metaphor will be so overused that we start to see the thing as the metaphor. So for instance, you might say you're battling cancer. And in a way, the metaphor works. Of course, we are fighting this disease. But the way we would do battle like with a foreign enemy, like on a battlefield, is actually different than what we would do to try to heal a human being. And so, so oftentimes we will look at things and it will skew the way we see ourselves and it will also skew the way we treat ourselves. So we're not a computer. We oftentimes will say I'm a computer and it's never the same thing, right? It's always I'm a computer up top and then I'm a machine down bottom. And, and there's kind of a master slave relationship here. I got to control my body. And so much of that is useful, but a lot of times it it makes us look at ourselves as these foreign entities. My body is different than me. I own a body. It's not that I am a body. And so what I encourage people to look at themselves at is an organism of action. So our species adapted to survive because we take action. This is how we're different from plants. So for instance, a plant, you can, you can plant a tree and the tree will stay there. They're really awesome. They they can produce their own food out of sunshine. I mean, photosynthesis is really awesome. I'm a little jealous. If the forest catches on fire or if there's some kind of a flood, 
that's the end of their survival strategy. Our survival strategy is different. We can't make our own food, but we can go to the food, right? So everything that we are is based off of action. And so when you start to understand what our organism is, you can start to understand why we have all these impulses and why we have all these problems and why have so we have this issue of anxiety, but we've always had these impulses. We've always had these voices, if you will. I say the voice of the unconscious you, it speaks in sensations. And what happens is we misinterpret these things. We don't know what they are because, hey, I'm a machine. I tell my body what to do. And why is it that I keep having these feelings and sensations? I can't sleep at night. I have indigestion, all these things. Well, it's because we have no relationship with what we really are. So instead of looking at ourselves as a body and a mind or a operator of a machine, what I suggest is that we look at ourselves as a relationship. We are a conscious and an unconscious being. It's a whole organism. And we have this conscious and unconscious experience that forms what we believe is our lived experience. And you can either make friends with the unconscious part of yourself, or you can work in conflict with that part of yourself. The only way we can really speak to that part of ourselves, we can, there's multiple ways. One of the most expedient ways is, is through our breath. This is where the language of breath, this is where we pick up. Once we have this basic foundational understanding of what we are, then we can start to say, okay, so is there any way to communicate with my unconscious to say, for instance, we are not in a snake filled hellscape when we're going to lunch. <laughs> There's like a multi-billion industry of acid reflux medicines out there that are specifically because we think we're a machine. We go to work, we're stressed out. Now it's time to put the food into the, I guess the, I don't know, it's like putting coal into the, the burner or whatever. And then it's like, okay, now digest that now. And then the unconscious is like, okay, I've got you set up to run away from the snakes. We don't digest when we're running away from snakes. And we have this misunderstanding that is at the, I would say, the heart of so many of our problems. So when we use our breath, we are speaking back. But in the language of breath, the breathing techniques, we have a lot of breathing techniques. But we believe that the breathing techniques, that's only half of breath work. The most important part of breath work, the most important part is learning to understand the voice of the unconscious. Because if you just learn breathing techniques, it's like just learning a language. Like I, my wife is Puerto Rican and my, all my in-laws speak Spanish. No habla espanol. I pick up a few things, especially when we're visiting the in-laws and things. I get, I get around a little bit. But if I only learned how to speak Spanish and then I didn't learn how to listen to the reply, like I can say, donde es el baño, right? Where's the bathroom? But then what I hear back is, da, 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 da. I, I don't understand any of the things that I hear back. If all you learn is techniques, that's basically what you're doing. You're learning how to speak, but you have no idea what the unconscious is speaking back. And so that is the language of breath, learning how to build that relationship. It's not just the speaking. It's not just the listening. It's learning how to build that relationship, understanding that there's a never-ending conversation that you can become a part of. Are you also speaking to like the way it was 
taught to me of having a pathogenic view of yourself and having a salutogenic view of yourself. Here's a problem. I need to fix it. That's the way we view being sick and getting better as opposed to how do I keep, you know, keep myself healthy. Coming from the position of rhetoric. So, and this is for better or worse, guys, I'm sorry. I'm an English professor that became a breath worker. So many of our biggest issues when it comes to human interactions is a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're even talking about, right? If you've ever had a spouse or a partner or even friends and family do this, right? You can argue all day. And then at the end of the day, it's like, why are we even, what is, and and it was like, we didn't even know what we were talking about the whole time. And so it's so fundamentally important to get an accurate, as accurate as we can. I break it down to conscious unconscious. One of my mentors, Dr. Otto Music, who's a fantastic, he's a neuroscientist out of Wayne State University in Michigan. He could describe all the different parts of the brain and, and all these different aspects and what they do. And, and, and I've picked up quite a bit from my friend over the years, enough to write two books, right? I think it was Einstein that said that you should make everything as simple as possible, no simpler. And so this is where I say, okay, so there's a, we have a conscious experience and then we have unconscious experiences. So that would include your subconscious beliefs, your autonomic nervous system, your you know, all of these things that are happening, the adaptive unconscious. I mean, there's enormous amount of things, more of us than is conscious. So it's kind of a big chunk that is unconscious self. But if we can start there and we can say, okay, so so ultimately, if we are willing to change the paradigm a little bit and look at ourselves in a way that is not mind, body, master, slave. Just think about it. If, if the way you look at yourself is master, slave, no wonder we treat each other so badly, right? Like there's a control element to it at all times. And it's no wonder, I forget the statistic of like, there's like, in the United States, I forget, it's like half of the people in the United States are on a diet at any time. And we know it's not working because 75% of Americans are obese or overweight, right? So what's the problem? Well, we try to white knuckle everything. And when you do that, you're depending 100% on your conscious thinking mind. And you're not taking into account that your unconscious self, it has more sway than what we're willing to acknowledge. And if we can learn how to make friends with that part of ourselves and to create a positive relationship and and we're at least even able to acknowledge that part of us exists, right? So we have a foundational understanding of what we are. Then we start to see some major changes in a positive way because then we're not trying to white knuckle it all the time. Yes, there's times whenever we have to say, hey, unconscious, I know you're going to be uncomfortable when we go to this dinner party or whatever, but we're going to do some breath. We're going to breathe some healthy calm in even during the party, it's not like we have to sit there and huff and puff all the time. While superventilation has its place, the vast majority of the language of breath is not sit down, breathe hard, right? There is a place for that, but the conversation never ends. And so often I would get the, the, the question, whenever you do like a Bostrika, like a superventilation, how long do the benefits last? I used to be like, wow. Let's see. And of course, we were looking at it as a pathogen versus basically we're looking at it like, okay, it's a, it's a drug, right? So uh, is it time release or is it, is it? Yeah, what, what's the half-life of it? Yeah. If that's the lens we're looking through, that's the only 
answers we're ever going to find. And, and again, that's an unconscious bias. And we're saying, okay, it's got to be the same thing as some kind of a drug. So how long does it, what are the, how long do the benefits last? And we're not only, look, there's the benefits, right? We're just looking for the list of side effects and effects like we would look at a prescription drug. And so when you realize that, okay, you get done with a breathwork session immediately, it's not like the unconscious you and the conscious you are just like, well, I guess we'll just not have any changes for a while. Again, it's immediately, as soon as you have an experience or a thought or a memory or an ambition, and a lot of those things are brought up unconsciously, you're never not having this experience and you're never not having this relationship. So you need to learn how to look at yourself so that you can treat yourself accordingly. And we'll use the unconscious as an excuse. People are aware of the unconscious when they say, well, I can't control it. And I think a lot of people are pretty aware too, when you have a thought and you mentioned food or whatever it is, and you have the thought of like, I want to do that. And then you may even have that thought of like, I shouldn't. And then you literally watch yourself do the thing. And then I think this is where people can maybe connect that whole idea of being an observer of your mind. Like, you know, in general culture, people now are aware of meditation, becoming an observer. Like, what does that mean? Well, that's what that is. You're observing, you're watching yourself do the thing. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, we don't need to label it good or bad. I'm just, we usually do, but I'm just, whatever the thing is, you're watching yourself do the thing. That's the observer, right? We're not bringing the unconscious, more of the unconscious and making it conscious. I guess we're just becoming more, this is where it gets confusing. We're becoming more conscious of as much of the unconscious as we can. Is that fair? That's a great way to put it. I, I would say that we're acknowledging the fact that the unconscious exists in a 24-7 way as opposed to the, like the average, at least for me, for the longest time, I'd heard about the unconscious and you have these subconscious beliefs and things. It's like we go around thinking that we're mostly just doing conscious thinking and deciding I'm going to decide to do this and this and that. And then only whenever it's like some kind of, uh, I got an emotional urge to hit somebody, right? <laughs> I punched the guy in the face. Well, I- it just came over me. Yeah, exactly. And it's typically that we only really acknowledge that there's another side of us at those times. And even then, we don't, I, th I don't think most of us have really any complete awareness or, or like an accurate awareness of what that is. We just are like, okay, these emotions, which I still don't know what they are, right? And it's like, uh, we'll watch the sci fi movie where they go to a planet and everybody's, they don't have emotions on that planet. It's like, wow, wouldn't that be kind of nice? There's no fear. And, but man, we wouldn't have love. But in reality, the unconscious speaks to us through emotion and it speaks through, to us through these things. And so I think the, the most important thing, and it's the foundation of the language of breath, is that you're not a tree. You're not a machine. You're not a mind that drives around a body. You are a whole organism you have these two concurrent experiences that form your lived experience. And the unconscious you is speaking to you in sensations, in bodily functions. It's speaking to you through emotions. And the unconscious you is capable of, of enormous amount of processing. It's believed that we ingest like for every second, like, like constantly, like at a constant level. So it's not every second, but it's at a constant level we're constantly processing 11,000 pieces of information, but we can only really process about 40 or 50 pieces of information consciously. 
and the rest is done the unconscious. And so, wow, that's an amazing thing. The unconscious is is filtering out all the stuff that it doesn't think the conscious should think about. And then whenever it's like, hey, you should think about that thing, it kicks it up and says, hey, conscious me, think about this because you're the one that can do like the careful, methodical processing. Unconscious is not that way. Unconscious makes snap judgments. It, it's the part of you that makes the prejudice judgments. It's the part of you. And it's important to understand that. And so we're a team. The goal of the language of breath is to form a positive relationship with that team because you're never not going to be that team. And so it's a different way of looking at what we are so that we can use that information to form a better union within ourselves and then go about making action because that's what we are. Your unconscious has never forgotten about the survival plan and it can't forget about it. So your unconscious is always trying to push you to action. And this is why there's a lot of philosophy that's kind of like revolved around this. They didn't know that the unconscious was doing that, but it was like, okay, it seems as though I'm happiest when I'm moving forward and I'm accomplishing goals. And there's just something about that. Well, the unconscious you is always trying to push you to take action to improve your situation or to improve your ability to survive or even to thrive within physical space. So when it comes to safety, when it comes to having enough food and things like that, things of a social value. And, and we, our species values social interactions a lot. And of course, reproduction and all those other things. It's always going to do those things. It says, hey, that's the game plan. I'm going to push you. I think based off of all the experiences we've had, I think we should go this direction. And that's what sometimes we call listening to the heart or listening to your gut. That's what that is. I mean, it's it's ultimately, okay, I don't know why I know that I should go this way, <laughs> right? But there is a part of you that is able to put together all these, so much information. Like if we, to compare it to computer is, is ridiculous. It puts all these things together so quickly and then sends you signals so fast that you're not even consciously aware of them until after you're experiencing them. I mean, we're an incredible organism and, and to call ourselves a machine or a, a computer, or it's, it's actually a detriment to what we are. And so if we can look at ourselves as, okay, this is what we are. We are a relationship within ourselves. Then we can start to have a better relationship within ourselves. And then we can start to have a better relationship with the world around us, making those actions, doing the things that, that are going to bring us to a better overall life. As we move towards the what and the how, we're not fully away from the why, but first off, you mentioned about things happening so quickly. So I think that's part of where we can give ourselves some grace. As in, if I had a moment to pause to make a different decision, I would take the logging road, but I've already, I'm so far down the superhighway that that opportunity is so far gone and now I'm here and now we're only in retrospect looking back and saying I woulda, coulda, shoulda. And the, you mentioned practice. That's a common term that people are aware of. Is this where we also bring in the term habit? Like we're aware we're creatures of habit. People are aware of that in colloquial terms. Are we speaking also of maybe retraining the unconscious? You use the party as an example. So the more that you would now put in a new practice, a new stimuli, the breathing before the party, maybe not the first, the second, the third, the fifth, the sixth time that you did that, but eventually your brain's going to be like, oh, we don't have to be afraid of going to parties anymore. 
And now that's in the unconscious and it's gone. And now you can just operate on that new heuristic, that new template, and that's easier for you and better. It's exactly right. So what happens so often is that we don't understand the signals that the conscious is sending. We see them as a problem. We want to take control. We make a decision and we don't die. So the unconscious is like, I guess that is the decision that we should make because we didn't die and we don't seem too much worse for wear. Okay, so so we develop, a lot of times we call them habits. The unconscious is constantly picking up patterns and it informs your subconscious as to what you're capable of and what you're not capable of and and your personality as as far as, okay, these are the things that you're going to do or that you'll be, you'll, you'll feel more comfortable doing because it's trying to protect you. And it typically is going to try to help you avoid problems more than it's going to try to help you to achieve something positive. Because as my friend, Dr. Otto Muzik said, we only have to get unlucky once as a creature, right? And then you're dead and then it doesn't matter anymore. So we've developed that. So what we do with breathwork and, and what I do with my clients, what my breathworkers do is ultimately we start to learn how to feel safe. And that is where the real change can happen for the better. So we start to learn how to feel safe in ourselves. And I would say body, but that goes back to the mind body disconnection. I've even in my book, I, I even try to come up with a word to just get out of that paradigm I came up with philia, which is a, a old Greek word for brotherly love or, 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 or the, the, the highest form of non-romantic love. It's where Philadelphia, they get that in its, its prefix. What happens is we have to reteach ourselves what we're capable of and what is safe behavior, what is unsafe behavior. The way we can do that quickest and most effectively, as far as I have seen, is using the breath to speak to the unconscious when we feel uncomfortable, when we feel these things, we can also use the breath and internal awareness. So, so internal awareness is really important. And it's one of the things that I teach. We have specific exercises that we we use in the language of breath to help a person really get this because a lot of times, and, and it's interesting, so many people that are in this space, man, I know internal awareness, man, I, I am so in and they really don't have, I mean, and I was, the, I, I'm not, I'm not saying them, right. I'm, I'm talking about myself too. I was dissociating using breath work for the longest time. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm really in there. And so when you really learn internal awareness, well, you can start to really listen to the unconscious before it even gets uncomfortable or when it's uncomfortable, you've, you've already learned how to respond in a way to remind your unconscious, hey, it's 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 going to be okay. We're all right. And then there are times whenever it's not all right and you want to lean into the energy that the unconscious is giving you to get the hell out of there. Or you need to say, is this dangerous or is this exciting, right? So there are conscious processes that we want to bring in. It's not, and, I, and this is where my breath work is, is, when it comes to language of breath, it's a little bit more complex. It's not complicated, but it's it's a little bit more complex because we love to oversimplify things. And I think what I've done with language of breath is I've brought it to as simple as, as we can do it ethically, right? This is as simple as it is without me saying, do this one trick and never feel fear again. You're going to feel fear. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is what it's the reason why you and I exist to this day, because our ancestors saw fear when they saw tigers, right? So when we use breath, 
what we're typically doing is we're, we're saying, okay, we're safe. And now we can start to make some progress. And then you have to, instead of retrain, I, I like to, I, I like to look at myself, my unconscious me. There's some techniques that we do that are specifically designed to help you meet yourself. And it sounds so, I, I don't know, woo woo to hear me say that to meet yourself. But when you really meet yourself, it's this interesting thing where it's this, there's a familiarity about it, but there's also this otherness that it is like, wow, that's my unconscious me I'm touching. I, I'm really making contact. And when you really do that, you realize that you have to raise yourself too. So it's as if you have a child and you are that child. It's the stuff that mom and dad used to say, right? And I do all this research and I come back to a lot of it is, hey, it's the friends you hang around. It's the media that you ingest. A lot of it is that. That's only going to go so far, right? So you can listen to all the motivational things and you can be around the really good people and all these things. It's only going to take you so far. Eventually, you have to have the energy and the courage and the willingness to push yourself to a place where the unconscious may not be willing to go. But if you push yourself too far, then the unconscious is going to block you. You can only white knuckle so much. The unconscious you is more you than the conscious you. And it's gonna, it, it's, it's really the one that's more in control. And I know no one wants to hear that. Oh, I'm in control. I, I didn't want to hear that. But when we learn to make friends with it, it can be the greatest ally you've ever had. And it's the thing that can compel you to do things you never, thought you could do because now you're we're in harmony with it and you're you're willing to acknowledge its presence and honor what it's saying and work with it and it's a simple it, i shouldn't say it's super it's not like a tech one technique it's it's i have a in the book and in the online course i have basically the language section we have tone we have inflection we have phrases i mean it's it literally is learning a language, understanding how this works and knowing what's appropriate to say, when it's appropriate to say it, how it's appropriate to say it. I always say that if a person comes up, someone that you actually love and they say, I love you. And they say, I, I love you, right? That that's, that's a phrase. The words mean what they mean, but how they said it also, if they were thumping their chest and say, I love you. It's just like, okay, you're saying the words, but the same can be said with all communication, including the way we communicate with our nervous system, with our, with our unconscious self via breath work. And I think a lot of my clients that I get are, they've tried this and that style, this and that method, this and that technique. And they're like, I felt something at first, I really got into it for a while and I don't feel like I get anything out of it anymore. Or, And when we re-examine what it is that we're actually working with, when we're working with breath and, and, and see it as the language, not just speak, but also we have to learn how to listen. In a way, it's retraining, building those habits, a lot of the words that we use. But I like to say you're raising yourself. You're guiding yourself. I have an eight-year-old son, and I'm sure I'm not being the... I, I know I make a lot of mistakes raising my son because I'm a human, but whenever you say, okay, man... On myself, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to try to undo some of those mistakes. It's not going to be overnight. Just like I can't undo, like for instance, I showed my son Star Wars. There's no blood in Star Wars. I showed it to him when he was five. And then I don't know if that was a good idea. <laughs> I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but I can't unshow him that. So now I, you have to stay with yourself. And so you can't undo the trauma that you've had in your life. You can start to 
work with it and start to feel safe within yourself, you can start to build new patterns and help your unconscious self to see that you're safer than you think you really are. There's, you can do a lot. We have so much we're capable of, but you have to learn how to speak and you have to learn how to listen. You have to learn how to form that better relationship. Do you think people are reluctant to go down this path? What makes me think of this is you mentioned your academic background. You mentioned you were sort of already hardwired with a curiosity. You were already sort of wired to yeah, look in and research things. Do you think that's why most people are reluctant to learn about options, the self-experiment, to notice changes, to persevere, to take different paths? Is that a personality trait? And the second part to that was, do you think it's challenging to take these paths because we're doing these things in real time? This is maybe why people go on retreats because they think if well, I go away for a week and I check out, I can do all this work, fix it, go back into real time, and then it will work. So maybe a two-parter, like what, what is the reluctance and do you feel like that's why you went down this path because of sort of who you were in the beginning? And then maybe speak to the idea of trying to do this in real time while life is is still happening to you. The reluctance is always coming from a place of love. And this is so hard, whatever we say it. So unconsciously, we've developed patterns by the time we're... But before we have conscious recollections, We've developed many, many patterns of seeing the world, identifying danger, identifying threat, values. A lot of things are established pretty early on. And they're, and the way the unconscious work, it, it will pick up patterns incredibly quickly, but it, it takes a long time for those patterns to be, I guess, in the parliaments of our language, we might say overwritten. You're not a computer, but you know what I mean, right? So to relearn how the the threat level of a social situation or, or, or those things, it takes time. You can't just expect it to be overnight. I was very fortunate in that I realized that I could only tolerate so much social time coming out of my addiction. I would build up an enormous amount of strength. It would take a lot of strength for me to go over to my friend's house and play guitar for an hour. And that was all I could handle in a day. If I were to say, hey, I want to be social and I were to skip those things, and say, oh, I'm going to throw a big party, it's, it's going to do you more harm than good. And so part of the reluctance is the fact that there's self-preservation in there. We've already established this is the way I'm comfortable with looking at the world. The unconscious doesn't want to instantly change. It's, it won't. It's, it's, it's not going to do that. The, the conscious self is able to, we can change our conscious thinking pretty quickly. We can say, you know what, you've explained this to me, now I've changed my mind. And that can make a big impact on our unconscious beliefs, but it takes longer for the unconscious to come along. So there's a lot of that at play. When it comes to real time, it's also very difficult. Again, in real time, the conscious you is able to do the close examination. It's able to, we can change our conscious thinking a lot faster. The unconscious is always using the things that it's always learned already. So you have to consciously be aware that these are the ways that I naturally feel about these things. And I consciously know that these things are, this is the direction that I, I want to take my team, right? It's not like it's a mind and body thing. It's not mind over body. Your unconscious is trying to help you and it's doing the best it can, and it's it's doing its job. And so it's important to acknowledge that and say, thank you, unconscious me. I appreciate it. We're going to work on this and be loving and give yourself grace, like you say, about these things. In real time, it's very difficult. 
And this is where I am a big proponent of slow changes over time as opposed to the instant change. I love retreats. Retreats are oftentimes an opportunity to get out of the real-time aspect of that and to re-examine, to allow yourself to kind of regroup and to free yourself of some of that stimuli that the unconscious was normally trying to deal with. You're in another environment. There's a lot of value of those. I still lead retreats every year and those are great, but there's also the retreat effect that I always warn people about. You go to the retreat, like you said, you know, you think everything's going to change. Oh, I'm different. And then you go back to the same stimuli. The unconscious is like, well, I'm back. You got to go back to the same survival strategies. And so it's important that there's an integrative process at the end of a retreat so that you can take those things with you. But the real timeness, that's why you need the language because you can't change the way a relationship works. You can't pause it. So I'm married and anybody who's got a partner understands that there are, if you're with a person long enough, there are changes. There are things that happen. You, Everything is in flux. My wife and I are not the same people we were 12 years ago when we got married. And, and any good partner is concerned and attentive for the other person's feelings. And you got to look at yourself like that. I know consciously I shouldn't have this fear of driving on the highways, right? I have a lot of clients that come to me like that, but I know that my unconscious is so, and I have some beliefs apparently that I can't survive driving on the highway. So, okay. So I need to show with love my unconscious self that we can do this, giving that grace and understanding that that sort of thing is just like any relationship. It's going to take some time. It's faster. And in some cases, the determining element is learning the language of breathing to speak back to your unconscious, right? So I, I want everyone to understand that there is a reason why the breath is so powerful in impacting that relationship. It is essential because it's never not happening and it's always a part of the conversation. So if I can modify my breathing to speak back to my unconscious I can make a lot of progress being attentive as I'm listening and then speaking back so that we can move forward as opposed to going in different directions, as opposed to being unheard. A very common thing is a person tries to make changes in real time, fails, and then starts to believe that they can't make changes, right? And it was just that, okay, your team needed a little bit of better communication, which is how all teams improve. The first accessible step for people to just start paying attention to what's happening now. Before they try to make a change, really, the first achievable step would be, can you just pay more attention to yourself and how you operate for the next two weeks, three weeks, a month without changing anything? So in the language of breath, we have, so I came up with these five tenets of the language of breath. And I know that might sound like, uh-oh, Here's the cult now. No, it, it just, it just, those are the words. These are the rules, the, the things to always keep in mind. Okay. So they're guidelines as you go about it, because there's not a, you do this session and then, wow, you're magically cured. It is a process that you'll never not be doing the rest of your life. This is not something to do for just a challenge and then it's over. It's you get started and you never stop. The very first tenet of the language of breath is awareness is the foundation of all positive change. And that right there is the most difficult thing to do. 
because becoming aware of how you feel means that, I mean, most of us have created blocks or we've learned how to suppress uh, even feeling ourselves, our emotions. We don't want to, or we've colored them to believe. And, and the thing is, this is the craziest thing. So especially in the breathwork world or in the self help world, there's people that come to me and they said, you know, I feel bad about how bad I feel. <laughs> and it's like, Oh my God, this is not helpful, right? You should not feel guilty about feeling an emotion. Let's think about this. Let's work with ourselves. So becoming aware is essential, essential. It's difficult without guidance because I think the word awareness and and mindfulness, they've become buzzwords that person's like, okay, that means I close my eyes and make a lotus position and listen to handpan music. <laughs> right? And I love handpan music. So I, I don't know. I got my guitars over here. I, I'm a guitarist. I so wish I could play a handpan. But the thing is, it comes down to a never-ending process of self-awareness and, and learning about yourself and that self will change as you learn about it again it's a relationship and it's so hard to see it that way like our language the english language is built in a cartesian mind body dualism even in this this conversation i'm sure we've talked about being hardwired to think a certain way or we've talked about i'm just not built this way right all of these things reinforce our old ways of looking at ourselves. And, and what we really need is a, is a paradigm shift. So I guess my biggest message would be ultimately, and this is, this is I guess, where I'll, I'll, I'll plug my book and my courses and things like that, is, is ultimately my, my book is coming out October 24th. There's going to be a, a whole online course. Uh, we're having a challenge, a free challenge, and then you can opt into taking a, a deep dive for six weeks with me and the community that's built around it. You get a free copy of the book. And the goal of that is not that at the end of six weeks, you're done, right? <laughs> that, that six weeks is just enough time to get you started. This is something that, like I, I said at the beginning of this, this is something that it's a journey I started and I had no idea where I was going and I'm still on that journey. But there are things that I've learned along the way that I wish if I would have known earlier, <laughs> if only I would have known. And this is what we're doing with the language of breath. We're, we're helping to look at our organism more effectively, more accurately. We're looking at breath work more accurately. What is the actual mechanism at play? Uh, it's not give the machine commands. Yes, you can bark commands all day, but that's not a great relationship strategy, right? <laughs> if you want a positive relationship, you need to learn to listen and you need to learn how to be attentive and you got, you've got to grow together. And that's what we are. So that is the language of breath, kind of the, the philosophy behind it. It's a, it's a, what I call a unified philosophy of, of self-awareness and breath work so that we can take those actions that we want to take. So many of us, you know, I would love to ask out so-and-so, but I just can't do it, right? What if? And there's all these things that prevent us from living the lives that deep down we want to live. And so often we don't even, we're not even willing to listen to ourselves. And so when we're able to build that relationship, when we're able to listen, when we're able to speak back and we're able to start having that relationship become more positive, that's whenever we really start to see happiness 
and and it never ends. It's something we'll continue to grow for the rest of our lives. Yeah, it's really tough for people, I think, to have trust and love and acceptance and feel safe in themselves when the outside world very often doesn't seem trusting, accepting, loving, safe. Especially now, it can feel very unsafe. So we can be very reactive and then, like you said, fall back into what's kept us alive. Like, I'm uncomfortable. This is not comfortable, but I'm alive and it's worked so far. So why not just keep doing it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Continuing to be reactive to perpetuate the patterns that we've seen other people have and that we've adopted ourselves and to completely ignore this amazing relationship that we can be if we take the time and build that awareness within ourselves. For people to dip their toe into this, what's the first breath work pattern or guided practice that you would recommend? The foundation exercise of the language of breath. I have a mini little mini course that teaches this foundational exercise I'd like to love to give to your audience. It's called the awareness exercise and it's, it's simple and it's boring. And if it's boring, if, 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 if you're a person that finds this to be absolutely boring, it means that you need to do it more than anybody else. <laughs> and it literally is simply if we can take a seated position, we don't want to do this lying down because I don't want you to become sleepy and things like that, because you will become generally, you're going to become pretty relaxed. The awareness exercise is not about sending a signal. The awareness exercise is ultimately helping us to learn interoceptive awareness. And so I'll just take us through real quick and maybe a little bit more advanced just so we can, I want, I want your listeners to, to be able to, to hear the voice of the unconscious self. So what we'll do is we'll just close our eyes and go into our space, really just kind of close our eyes. And just by simply by closing our eyes, we shut out about 10,000 pieces of information that we're constantly receiving. So one of the reasons why it's so nice to close our eyes is because it, it, it just lends itself to internal awareness. And what I'd like you to do is become aware of your breathing and just breathe in and out through your nose and observe your inhale as it enters your nose, tracing it all the way down. You can take a full breath or you can just take a nice little small breath just down into the belly and then trace it back out. And as you do this, I'd like you to just imagine that you could focus in on just one single molecule, one atom of oxygen. Focus in on that as if that is your awareness. And you're going to invite awareness in through your nostrils, inside of your throat, not on the outside, not on your neck, not on the front of your throat, inside your throat. Can you trace awareness from your nostrils, through your sinuses, through your head, down your throat, into your chest, down into where your belly is expanding. And that's inside. That's not on the outside of your chest, not on the outside of your upper back. That's on the inside of yourself, your torso. That's the word I was looking for. And then observe it as it slowly leaves coming from the belly, through the chest, through the throat, through the sinuses, 
and then out the nostrils again. And all we're doing is we're inviting our awareness in with our breath. We're combining awareness and breathing. Now, we're not just simply focusing on the breath. So oftentimes we'll say, just focus on the breath. That's not what we're doing specifically. We are using the breath to invite awareness into ourselves, into the philia. If if you read my book, I'm going to start a new vocabulary word. But just observe. Can you, as you're breathing in, it's not necessarily that you're tracing the feeling of the breath. It's that you've decided where your awareness is and you're bringing it in at the pace of your breath, bringing it through the nostrils, through the sinuses, down through your throat, down into the bronchioli, even down into the alveoli. Can you feel as if it's just one tiny pinpoint of awareness as it goes down and then back up again? And just keep doing this. But what I'd like you to do now is after each exhale, have a small pause, not a long breath hold, but a small pause between each exhale and the next inhale. And on that pause, I want you to see if you can feel any sensation, any place within you that is kind of reaching out for your attention. Maybe it's a sore muscle. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's just a sensation. I don't, I don't know what it is. You don't have to know. And, and don't try to say, well, it's my stomach or it's my liver. Just search for the sensation. That's all we're doing. So inhale, pulling in your awareness on the inhale. Exhale, letting the awareness come back out on the exhale. Pause. Focus in on one place, and even if it's just your chest, in the middle of your chest for that brief breath hold. And all we're doing is we're just learning awareness. So right now, you may be, you are, you, you don't know it, you may or may not know it, you are hearing the voice of the unconscious self. But right now, we're just developing some basic awareness. And as you're doing this, I'm going to bring up a, a few things I'd like you to think about. So we're going to get a little bit more advanced just so we can really start to hear the voice of the unconscious self. So what I'd like you to do as you're doing this awareness exercise, I want you to think of something that makes you angry. Really bring that to your conscious awareness. And this may be difficult, but as you're bringing that to your conscious awareness, this thing that makes you angry, see if you can continue to observe, but observe any sensations that come up as you think about that thing, any physical sensations that come up as you think about something that makes you angry. That is the voice. That's one of the ways, one of the voices of the unconscious you is speaking right now. Just feel those physical sensations. What's changed as you think of something that makes you angry? Okay. You can Try to clear your thoughts. Maybe just go back into the awareness exercise, tracing your awareness in, tracing it out, pausing between breaths, scanning yourself from head to toe, maybe between breaths, just finding a place to put your full awareness 
on that, that short pause between breaths. And we'll end on a maybe a more happy emotion. Let's think of something that makes us feel gratitude, something you're grateful for. Doesn't have to be a lot of things, just one thing. What is it that you feel grateful for? And observe the physical sensations that come up when you think of that thing. That's the voice of the unconscious you. Notice how it's it's not the same sensations. It's slightly different, maybe a lot different. But it's speaking to you. That is you speaking to you. It's not in English. It's not in Spanish. It's not in any linguistic forms that we have that we can write down. It is in sensations. And what if we can work with this? What if we can learn to decipher the splatterings? You can go back into normal breathing. You can come out, open up your eyes. But what if we could learn how to decipher these things and how to work with the splatterings of emotions? Those were specific emotions, but we're experiencing emotions all the time and they're confusing. What if we could learn to interface with this aspect of being a human? That, that is what we do in the language of breath. And this was the awareness exercise. So I'll send you a copy of the little mini course that we do, the language of breath, the, the exercise that we just did. And all of your viewers can get a copy of that. Tremendous. I imagine that over time, we can do that in more highly stimulating situations. So this is the foundational exercise because ultimately we have to become aware. We have to really develop that skill of awareness. And then you can do it driving. You can do it on the basketball court. You can do it on the battlefield. You'll never not have this relationship that is you. You will be that relationship until you die. And that is what it is to be a human being. And what a beautiful thing it can be when we have a positive relationship. To bring firefighting into this just briefly, one of the things I've offered to anybody in the job that's willing to listen is the great thing is that because we wear an air pack and you have that regulator in front of your face, you can hear yourself breathe. If you check in with yourself, you can notice quickly, audibly, that your breathing's fast, right? Or slow or challenging. And you can take control over that audibly by hearing that pattern change and then thereby taking more control over your emotions and being able to be in a place where you can think clear. So if that's any motivation, if people aren't motivated initially for themselves, maybe if you want to be better, quote unquote, better at the job, <laughs> that's one way to be motivated to try this and integrate it into your work and then possibly integrate it into your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I'm so happy I was here. This has been a lot of fun. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? So if you'd like to learn the language of breath, you can go to languageofbreathcollective.com. You can also go to jessiecoomer.com. My book will be out. It's called The Language of Breath, and it will be available in bookstores and on Amazon on October 24th. It'll be on Audible, Kindle, all the different formats. And we're going to be doing a, a full challenge. Uh, if you'd like to dive in really, really deep, you can get the complete course. And uh, I'll be checking in with everybody every week. We'll do breathwork sessions and you get a free copy of the book. 
More information will be coming out on that if you sign up for my newsletter at jessiecoomer.com or you can also sign up at languageofbreathcollective.com. And you can always find me on Instagram and YouTube as well, but those are the best ways to find me on my websites. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing and we need more people doing it. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on.